You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I'm joined on the line this morning by Mr. David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how are you doing this morning? Pretty decent. All right. And also from Minnesota, the Great White North. I'm not sure if there's snow up there yet. But we're joined by Mr. Michael Farmer, who has, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, drawn within a single-digit number of pages of a full dissertation draft. I believe so. I, I, I can see the end, and now I just have to power through it. No, it hasn't started snowing up here yet. It's rainy today, though. All right, all right. And you posted that on Facebook, so I'm not you know, disclosing any sort of confidential information here. Uh, this mm-hmm. is Facebook official, as my students say, uh, that Mr. Michael Farmer is within striking distance. And speaking of dissertations, I do want to take just a moment to congratulate an old friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Jason Payton, uh, who successfully uh, defended his dissertation in American literature at the University of Maryland yesterday. Uh, So it was October 17th, a Wednesday when it happened. Jason, I don't know if you listen, but if you do, congratulations, man. I am just thrilled for you. Uh, listener feedback, guys. Uh, first of all, the blog, I I have to say, uh, I've been slacking this week and it's because I've been meeting with 60 different students, about 60 different paper drafts. Uh, didn't write the Bible post. I mean, I'm just, I'm not doing well this week as far as producing blog content. I will try to get back in the saddle. Hopefully by the time this one hits the airwaves. Uh, have we gotten any other listener feedback? I know we've gotten some more thumbs up on Facebook. Not that I can think of. All right, all right. I I will say that Brad Warfield, once again, is chiming in with some wonderful presidential uh, trivia on our our show notes for the last Federalist Papers episode. Uh, Mm -hmm. Once again, proving that uh, the Christian Humanist podcast is not about three experts, but about three people still trying to learn. (laughs) <laughs> right. So uh, we probably sound pretty good until we talk about a subject you know about, at which point we sound like a bunch of idiots. Oh, exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's part of the fun, honestly. We should I'd... call this the Christian Dilettante Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I like humanists better. We did have a gentleman who, uh, who, who posted some, uh, some chess quotes, which I thought were rather nice but i mean do we want to hold off on those and and treat them as if they were responses to this episode even though they preceded it 
Uh, yeah, I'd prefer to, to uh, <laughs> bend the whole space-time boogie-woogie for the sake of this episode, if that is all right with our listener. And I forget okay. his name. David, do you have that on the screen at the moment? Yes, Jonas underscore MN. Uh, yeah, Jonas, we're going to pretend as if we didn't get this until next week. So. Hey, is he from right. Minnesota? Maybe. I don't have anything Do you know to add him? to that. No, I, I oh, okay. I don't, I don't think I know anyone named Jonas. <laughs> here, here, I'm waiting for the punchline. And I... uh, no, is he is he a brother? <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> well, at any rate, to get into today's subject matter, uh, this is an episode that I've actually been thinking about doing for a while. I just never did write the show notes up. Uh, when I was a kid, a grade school kid. Uh, I was not athletic, I was not coordinated, but I could play a little bit of chess. Uh, and this is one of those games that's been with me uh, really ever since I was about first grade. In other words, you know, about my son's age. I've been teaching him the game, so it's something that uh, is really part of who I am, and it is the game of chess. Uh, and this is a game where the origins are blurry. Uh, some people put it as far back as the 5th century AD, some people say 8th. Uh, but really, sort of the golden age of chess takes off uh, right around the time of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, guys, uh, chess is a game that people tend either to love or to hate. Uh, Michael, tell a moment to tell our listeners about your own history with the game, whether or not you've had any memorable chess moments. And then, David, I want to hear your chess story as well. Yeah, I um, I went through a period of my life, early high school, mostly where I, where I played a lot of chess. My my father and I would play it in the evenings, and then I mean I don't really have that many memorable stories. I I never rose above the level of low mediocre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know the rules. I know a little bit of strategy. I it is not a game I can get super into I, I i think i lack whatever part of your brain you need to to really get into it <laughs> although i i will say this i had a, a computers class in high school mm -hmm. and because it was a computers class we would regularly finish 20 minutes before the end of the period <laughs> and so the uh the professor the teacher had a a number of chess boards and i would play every afternoon with this kid and he beat me for the entire first half of the semester and uh Eventually, I beat him, and I never lost to him again. And that—that that is one of the few times in my life I've actually—I I was actually aware at the time of how much I was progressing. So, uh, you know, I, like I said, I never got a bit uh, above low mediocre, but I, I did improve. Now I haven't played it in probably ten years. Every now and then, I pull out the computer—the computer chess program uh, that came with my Macintosh—and uh, I lose to the computer there. <laughs> All right, David, how about you? Do you play any? Oh, lordy. Um, I learned the rules of chess on a chess board with these massive, like, as Duplos are to Legos, <laughs> so was this chess set to other chess sets. <laughs> and it had the moves, like, actually inscribed on the backs of the pieces and these, they had these really blocky bases with the, with the with the moves on there so that i'd be like oh what do i do with a knight oh i okay. think i think you and i had the same chess set david maybe okay is it the one with the training wheels it was plastic right the the pieces were plastic and not wooden or yeah yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. yeah no european craftsman slaved for hours <laughs> over <laughs> 
the training wheels just said. Uh, that did not help. Um, I still got regularly beat by my brother. Um, and then that, so after I was a child, the last time I played chess again was when, uh, I, I started, uh, I started dating my wife and went to, uh, I went to meet her family and, and every time I hung out with them, I'd hang out with her little brother who's now in, now in middle school at the time he was, you know, eight or nine, something like that. Anyway, he, he was playing chess at school, and so he challenged me to a game and beat me like a drum. <laughs> he lost to a third and, grader. Now, gr- gr- granted, granted, I had only ever played training wheels chess, so he kept having to remind me of things, and I'd make a move, <laughs> and he'd snicker. Well, when you when you do and, the double jump and say, king me, he was on to <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes, he was he was on to me. So uh, actually playing chess, I have very little experience. The funny thing, though, is that I've always had a fascination with chess. Artistically, I like chess sets. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, pe- okay. the pieces are beautiful. Um, I, I like the – you know, I, I love it aesthetically. I wish I was better at it. It's kind mm-hmm. of like pipe smoking. You wish you were better at pipe smoking? No, I mean, I that, mean that is oh, okay. that is a skill you learn. I, I, yes. someone who I, 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 I've never tried it, so I mean, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll grant it if you guys tell me that it's a skill. It, it is. It, it is a skill okay. not to drip tobacco juice all over your shirt and not to yeah. burn holes in your clothes. It really is. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I've never taken up the attempt at that skill, and now I'm contractually obligated not to. Um, <laughs> but I always had a fascination with with it aesthetically i always just thought it looked really cool all right and so chess chess is kind of like that for me okay all right did either of you ever play the computer game battle chess oh yeah oh <laughs> talk about <laughs> something that will make chess interesting to little boys <laughs> oh you better believe it uh, that thing was great yeah i mean I, I i haven't touched it for probably 20 years but i remember it well I don't remember Battle Chess. It was, was you know, it was cartoon figures. They look like, instead of looking like chess pieces, they looked like people. And when you took another, uh, the other player's pieces, your, your piece would kill him in some cartoonish way. And of course it was different for each piece that was being killed and different for each piece that was doing the killing. I remember Mm. when somebody took the king, they stripped him naked. (laughs) <laughs> because because my friend and I had an argument as to whether you could see anything. Uh, <laughs> well, see, the version I played out was on the Commodore 64, so I'm almost certain that nobody could see anything on that. Yeah, that's true. No, mine was for a PC. It was must have been 1992, 93. Okay, all right, all right. Um, I, I remember, you know, one of the pawns would hit the other pawn's foot, and he'd jump up and down, and then he'd kill him. You know, it was <laughs> ridiculous. That sounds awesome. But I, I'm sure it got lots of 10-year-old boys into chess because it's exactly the sort of thing a 10-year-old boy would like. I wonder if I can find that freeware. Oh, I have to think it's somewhere out there, easily available. Um, real quick, I you know, like I said, I mean, I've been playing for a long time. I, I sort of hit the apex of my ability right around sixth grade, which is kind of sad, I recognize. Uh, but I mean, I actually was good enough that I was playing in the Indiana grade school state tournament. So, I mean, I, you know, and I wasn't losing every game there, you know, I mean, I was actually doing well until, 
And this might be one of the most humiliating moments in my young chess career, but I, I was play the way that that tournament works, you play in four player teams and I was the top board for my grade school. Cause I, you know, there were about three of us who sort of jockeyed over the, you know, the last three years of grade school for, you know, who was the best player at our school. And, you know, by sixth grade, I was the number one. So, you know, I was on the top board, got paired up in the state tournament against a six year old prodigy. And I never was in that game. I, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, you know, I, David's already used beat like a drum. So, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, he, you know, that there are rugs that don't get beat like I got beat. So, so, uh, that's why you weren't laughing when I made fun of David for losing to a third grader. No, no, because I mean, at the apex of my ability, I mean, I, I, I routinely tell people that my, uh, 11 year old self could easily beat my 35 year old self. Uh, I got just clobbered by a six-year-old. And by the way, he ended up being, I think, the number four player in the state that year. So, I mean, I, you and know, it's you no know great the rest shame. Of the story. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, all the same, I mean, losing to this, you know, little first Twerp. grader, <laughs> well, you know, it was more than a little humiliating. I'll just say that. Um, yeah. At least you made it to the tournament. I'm, I'm sure I wouldn't have been able to do that. Oh, I mean, it was a thrill because, again, I mean, I was no good at baseball. I wasn't that good at soccer. Uh, you know, I mean, really, that was the thing that I was good at in grade school. So, I mean, you know, the fact that I was, uh, you know, they announced on the announcements that the, you know, chess team made it so far in the Indiana State Tournament. And, you know, it was, it was my little moment of pride in grade school, you know, before I got, you know, punched out on the playground again. But, you know, the... <laughs> Uh, but it was, you know, one of those moments of pride in my life. So, you know, I, I do remember it fondly. Well, David, uh, to get a little bit historical, cause that's <laughs> what we do sometimes. Uh, one of the fun bits of chess history is that in the same rough period when Agrippa and Capoferro were writing their scholarly fencing manuals and the Protestant scholastics were writing their grand works of theology and Boyle was writing on chemistry, and Newton was writing on optics. Uh, there were Spaniards named Ramirez and Lopez writing scholarly treatises on the game of chess. Uh, David, what about that 16th and 17th century period lent itself to the flourishing of such scholarly manuals? And what about chess do you think lends itself to be in that company of disciplines? Yeah, I thought that was really subtle how you slipped in Agrippa and Capoferro. I th I thought you were making a Princess Bride joke at first. Oh, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so, Of course, yeah. you'd expect me to count there using Capoferro. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, and by the way, th those were real fencing theorists, and you can get good English translations online if you're interested. If you want to learn right, how right, to right. fence... Oh, or if you've just watched Princess Bride too many times and you actually want to read, he's Agrippa. <laughs> see, I've studied your. I see you've studied your Agrippa. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I thought you were just making a Princess Bride joke, and then I looked it up. I was like, oh, those are like real guys. Good, jo good job, Princess Bride. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, the 16th and 17th centuries, though, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how closely you can associate Lopez and Ramirez with, with, I mean, 
Newton. You really did kind of fudge that period. But <laughs> um, Ramirez, uh, Luis Ramirez de Lucena is uh, uh, published uh, in 1497, the Repetición de Amores de Arte de Ajedrez. Um, the repetition of loves or the repetition of love in the art of playing chess. Um, given that I don't read Spanish anyway, and that the only <laughs> instance of this text I could find was a PDF facsimile in black letter. Um, I have no idea what the whole repetition of love part means, but <laughs> the art of playing chess part, that's fairly clear. <laughs> it's just saying, um, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> Let's oh, play chess. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I was wondering if it was one of these, like, like you know, the art of love in chess or something. I'm like, uh, what? What? Eat, pray, checkmate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, like that. Um, uh, uh, Rodrigo, aka Rui Lopez de Segura, um, and 1561. Uh, published the Libro de la Invención Liberal y Arte del Juego del Ajedrez. The invention of, let's see, the, the book of the liberal invention, I guess, like liberal arts. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, liberal invention and art of the game of chess. Um, and this is the guy that the, the, the Rui Lopez opening is named for, even though he didn't invent it. He just thought it was better than... Um, one recommended in an earlier manual. And what is that opening, David? I'm not familiar with that term. I don't read chess, so... Uh, uh, White advances their king pawn two spaces on the first move, then advances their king's knight, followed by the king's bishop. We're dealing with an expert here, David. No, I, I only know that because that is the only opening that I ever memorized, and I still use it when I play. Right. I mean, this this one is the Rui Lopez is well known enough that I've heard of it. <laughs> um, when we get to the literature section, I will explain where I heard it and be embarrassed. There you go. But um, I mean, well, and I, I have to say this just because I mean, it shows just what a nerd I was in sixth grade. But I actually subscribed to chess magazines and had three or four openings memorized. Wow. Uh, back then. I mean, now I'm down to Roy Lopez. That's the only one that I still remember. Ma magazines, plural. Uh, well, I mean, issues of the same publication, <laughs> but oh. yes. Okay. No, oh, no, but I, I mean, mean I, uh, I would say there's a big difference. I mean, there's a big difference between subscribing to a chess magazine and not subscribing to a chess magazine, but the difference between subscribing to multiple chess magazines and... Just okay, no, that, yeah, I never did go that far. <laughs> I mean, largely, that's, largely, that's largely because I do not read Russian. <laughs> yeah. While and the we'll rest of us were getting Boy's Life and Nintendo Power, you Nintendo were getting Nintendo Power. We need an episode about that so we can talk about how <laughs> yeah, I we, wasted we, my teen, <laughs> my uh, preteen years. Well, well, we'll 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 give Nathan his his chess, and you can get your Nintendo later. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, but why 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 then why in the very late, very late 1400s, 1500s, and on in. Um, I asked my wife this because I had I had an inkling, and she had the same inkling. So we decided to chase it out. Um, 
I see this as as part of the whole, uh, well, to borrow a term from Spencer, fashioning a gentleman trend mm-hmm. in uh, in the Renaissance, uh, which in which manuals. Pro, pro, pro. There were lots of them. They yeah. <laughs> they prolifer that word. Fellow who played the guitar. They were all over the place mm-hmm. um, about how to how to do things better, how to be a good prince, how to be a good king, how to be a good courtier. Castiglione's book of the courtier. We cite that a lot whenever we uh, accuse you of of sprezzatura, Nathan. Um, <laughs> that's what we're getting that from the the art of doing things well and not looking like you spend a lot of effort on it. Um. Anyway, that that this. This era in which these chess manuals were were written was that uh, was that era, and and why chess? Well, because it was a game that was uh, it was played in um, high society settings, and being good at it reflected on uh, your character in the same mm-hmm. way that uh, being good at jousting or being good at singing or being good at uh, you know public speaking reflected on your abilities as a person of a certain station. Right. Um, it was also uh, because of an earlier book by a, an Italian gentleman, Jacobus de something, something, something. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce <laughs> that name. It looks like Chesolis. I'm, I'm, anyway, whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, wrote a book of chess, which basically moralizes the game. And uh, fine. I, yeah, I found out about this because I read Thomas Elliott's Book of the Governor for my Renaissance comps. Mm-hmm. And in it, he recommends uh, the learning of chess, um, but especially if you've you've not only learned chess, but also read the book that moralizes it. Because whenever you play, your morals are being enforced. Huh. So in, in, anyhow, I mean, I, I, I see that as, as as one of the main reasons. This is a this is an era in which people are focused on honing certain skills in order to climb the ladder, and chess was one of those skills. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anything you want to you, you any insight you want to add? Michael, were you going to chime in there? I was not. Oh, okay. Very good. I, I I heard you inhale as if to launch forth into educated discourse. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I I don't know why I put Newton in there. I think I had Copernicus in mind, and for some reason, my mind went to Newton. I I do apologize for that, David. Well, but scientists look I, the same to you, don't they, Nathan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my <laughs> you know, since I live on the humanity side of the tracks. Um, but you know, I. <laughs> Uh, I would say that, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, these were all uh, manuals for people who were trying to advance in in society. And moreover, I mean, you know, with the improvements in printing, right? You know, I mean, they're in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. All of a sudden, uh, as we've talked about a number of times on this podcast, it becomes possible for people to have texts in common. Uh, You don't have to wait for a monk to copy uh, one copy of, you know, the book of chess, you know, to be put in the library, which is the only one for hundreds of miles around, you can actually produce several copies of this. And then, you know, you can debate whether, you know, you are a Ramirez or a Lopez person or, you know, whether in fact, uh, Bonetti's defense does in fact cancel out Capo Ferro unless your enemy <laughs> has studied his Agrippa, right? 
Uh, and I just chowed that line, I realized. But <laughs> you get the point. You know, I mean, it becomes a time when uh, you can, you're absolutely right, David, wear your learning as a fashion accessory. Uh, yeah. Which, I mean, in my mind, what a glorious time it would have been. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the other hand, you'd have to wear tights as a fashion accessory, too. Oh, good point, good point. Not sure I'm, right. be, I'm willing to make that trade. <laughs> well, that, that time ended much more recently than it might appear. Um, oh sure, sure. Keep rolling. You, are you guys familiar with with the the works of the learned? Uh, I believe he was an Oxford professor, Oxbridge, definitely. Um, Stephen Potter. I am not familiar with him. Okay, I've he wrote, heard the name, but beyond that, no. He wrote a book entitled "The Theory and Practice of Gamesmanship, or the Art of Winning Games Without Actually Cheating." Nineteen forty-seven. <laughs> Um, it's, uh, and there are several others, one called lifesmanship, uh, one upsmanship, and it just kind of goes on from there. And it's basically these silly things that you can do in order to throw your opponent in a competitive situation off their game Oh, so that you either win or get credit for having more skill than you've actually got. So, so like, what, <laughs> give me an example, David, Did you just stick out your tongue well, or... All right, in chess, that these are his. Two, these are two recommendations for chess. One is for um, looking like you know more than you do in chess. The other is just for generally showing off in 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 life because it requires the cooperation of an accomplice. Um, in the first one, basically, what you do, you sit down to the game of chess. You make your first move. Your opponent makes their first move. You stare at the board for about five minutes. And then you stand up and say, good game. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Walk away. Like you saw all the moves and you, you, you just read your opponent and you knew that they were, that they were going to beat you. And you just concede good game and you walk off. Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Um, the other, the one that requires an accomplice, uh, basically involves very ostentatiously walking through the halls and whenever you pass one another, repeating a chess move as if the two of you are playing a game of chess in your head. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> oh that's great. That's great. Okay. Where did so, you find this book, David? Well, I, I read an article about it. I think I think it, it was the New Yorker or New York Times or New York Times Magazine. It had New York in it. Anyway, it, it was it was some kind of like a, a memory of this of this particular writer, and it had this whole list of of uh, stuff that he, you know, little little tricks like that that he came up with. A lot of them are really quite brilliant. Um, some of them have to do with you know wine tasting and other kinds of high society things. How well, to basically? I, I was gonna I was gonna say the era where you where you're learning on your sleeve as a fashion accessory is not over. It has just moved into Food and wine. Yes. Yeah. Well, I can see he that. Had, he I has some that. some very uh, relevant advice in that: how to give people a bad wine and make them think it's good. Right. Uh, put a that, fancy but, uh, label on it, as it turns out. Well, well, his is to his is to uh, after after people are making that terrible taste, apologize and say, "But if you'd had it eight months ago." <laughs> <laughs> good Lord. Right. No, I, all, all I'm like, saying, Michael, hey, is. You taste the potential that it had, 
uh, <laughs> what, what wine we lost. Oh, anyway. that's great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, compare that to, you know, my own teenage years where chess club was shorthand for social outcast. Right, right. You know, that. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, Michael, you know, now that I'm confessing my sins, uh, one of the appeals of the game of chess for me growing up uh, was that there was no chance involved. Uh, everything that happens on the board is a result of something else that happened on the board with no remainder. Uh, does this affinity for the orderly say more about me as a person and my own hangups, or does it say more about the greatness of the game, or does it say something else entirely? It's not quite enough to explain it, though, is it? Because, I mean, checkers is the same way. There's no chance in checkers, and yet checkers is not shorthand for brilliant mind. Although mm -hmm. checkers is in its way just as difficult as chess, or at least it's more difficult than you think it is. Oh, yeah, that's certainly true. I, I think it's a combination of it being not just not just entirely the product of the human mind, but also the number of variations in the chess game are so vast that it, it is enormously complicated. And, you know, the, the key, they say, to chess is being able to think three moves ahead. But how do you think three moves ahead when there's, you know... 300 plus possible moves every time. I don't know if that's a good number or not. I don't have a sense for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's not just that it's all logic. It is that it is entirely, it's, it's so incredibly complicated. I don't like that. It's all logic, frankly, because I'm not terribly, a uh, terribly logical person. I like, this is why <laughs> I like card games because you have an element of chance as well as skill. Mm -hmm. Okay. I like, I like Fortuna. <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes fortuna is kind but um you know brationis uh <laughs> yeah well and, and the nice thing the Not nice thing so the nice thing about playing gin rummy you know or something like that is when you lose you can always blame a bad hand when you lose in chess you've really got no one to blame but yourself right right <laughs> Although people still manage to, I mean, and, and that's what's great about it, is that, I mean, the, the the excuses people make for a bad game of chess are just glorious. And by the way, I've got three fingers pointing back at myself for this one. So give me an example. I would love to hear an excuse for losing a game of chess. Oh, I mean, for instance, I mean, when I play with, uh, you know, family, when we get together for Christmas and whatnot, I mean, I have heard... Um, and I mean, this is when I was on the winning side, which is why I remember it. I don't remember the times I've made excuses quite as clearly. I remember, you know. Uh, well, those weren't excuses. Those were explanations. <laughs> you know, the kids distracted me. Uh, you know, I uh, I wasn't thinking about that piece. You know, I've heard, you know, just crazy <laughs> stuff like that. You know, I it, it's one of those things where, and I'm, and I'm trying to think. I mean, when I, when I got clobbered by that first grader. No, I mean, I really couldn't make any excuses for that one because I really didn't play badly. He was just that much better than me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that's one of those things I, you know, and and again, I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. I mean, when I know that I've really been beaten rather than I lost, I'm all right with that because I know that I've been in the presence of someone who's genuinely skillful. When I make a mm -hmm. stupid move, though, I mean, I, I can make excuses as well as any of them. You know, I was I, I wasn't thinking about it. I was distracted by something. I was, you know, whatever, rusty, 
<laughs> of course, the I mean the most the most humiliating thing is to lose to the computer. Oh, and see, I I never beat the computer, so I I'm much much better at playing human beings than I am playing computers. Yeah, I I don't think there's any shame in being beaten by the computer anymore. Well, not after Kasparov lost. Yeah. Right. Right. But I mean, even just your you know standard onboard chess game, I mean, usually has enough programming to take down most people who are sub master ranked. So, I mean, it's, it, it's no shame because again, the computer and, you know, I'm, I'm bu- entirely bumming here off of what uh, Ken Jennings said about, uh, no, it wasn't deep blue. It was what Nelson or Winston or whatever that <laughs> Winston. Yeah. British named computer know. that plays jeopardy, you know, uh, I hate that fa- computer and it's smug face. Yeah. It's, it's fast. <laughs> it's smart. And it doesn't think about girls. <laughs> it's never known the touch of a woman, I believe is what oh, he said. Oh, is that the line? Okay, that yeah, I remember that now. I remember that now. Just so like my every apologies. Jeopardy champion. That was Jennings. Except I, presumably the ones that were women. But, you know. Well, I, I think he was trying to be witty, not sociological. Ah, mm, okay. <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, David... People like it when we get literary, so let's go around the horn here. You start, take a few minutes, few moments to dig into a literary text or two in which chess figures in some way. Hit the road, David. Well, I'm going to go extraordinarily lowbrow and silly. Go. Um, the reason why I knew the term Rui Lopez was because of the Hardy Boys Volume 53. <laughs> the clue of the hissing serpent in which they are looking for a missing chess trophy. Um, and uh, all right. Either of you guys read, read Hardy boys. At all? No, I did not. Nope. Uh, what a shame. <laughs> anyway, they've got this friend named Chet. I, uh, I, I don't yet. Yeah, Chet. Anyway, Chet, especially during the books written in the sixties and seventies, Chet always had a hobby, and that hobby always ended up being somehow related to the theme of the book or useful at some critical point. Anyway, Chet's hobby in The Clue of the Hissing Serpent is chess, and so you know he was always going on about all the things that he was learning, and, and so what little bits of chess history and chess terms and so forth that I have um, – most of them I got from Clue the Hissing Serpent, Volume 53 of the Hardy Boys Mysteries. So, you know, that that's that's one. Um, so, does that, is that a literary reference? Uh, I, well, hey, it works for me, man. <laughs> it's a, it's it, it's a novel. It's not you know, it's it's not a huge thing, but you know, I want to give it. I want to give credit where it's due to the place where I learn things like the word checkmate comes from, you know, comes from Persian, um, Shamat and it means the king is dead. Mm-hmm. Right? I didn't know. I that. thought, yeah, I learned that from a Hardy boys book. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Etymologically, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, David, it has no etymological connection to the English verb to check as no. in to stop. Yes. None at all. Thanks. Franklin W. Dixon. Yes. If only or, you were a real person. 
Thanks, fake man. <laughs> All right. Uh, the other book I want to reference is slightly more highbrow, but not a whole heck of a lot more. Um, <laughs> the Chessmen of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's one of his Barsoom books. So we've got um, early 20th century science fiction. Um, it's pretty cool because he imagines on this planet of Mars, which you know our hero John Carter is exploring, um, he imagines this variation of chess that's sort of more tied to the culture that's there. And uh, in it, you have a king of this little uh, sort of independent city-state who's trying to court a princess, but she finds him to be just a bit too smug and self-satisfied and so rejects him. Anyway, she gets kidnapped, and he goes undercover. He assumes the costume of an ordinary uh, soldier for hire in, a, in an attempt to go rescue her. And finds her in this city where chess, uh, or jetan, as the game is called on Mars, is played with living people. So they've got this massive court that's divided up into a chess board and uh, warriors who play all of the pieces. But instead of simply assuming the square that you're moved to, as in the game of chess or the game of jetan on Mars, um, you have to fight for your square. So it isn't just a game of knowing the rules of the game and being it to anticipate your opponent. You also have to have a certain knowledge of the players who are representing you in the, in the different positions. And so in the end, uh, in the end, he, he wins and gets the girl and so forth. But the fun thing is you have a king who becomes a pawn <laughs> – in order to win the queen, anyway. So, so yeah, those those are my those are my chess books. I love the Barsoom books; they're so much fun. <laughs> anyway. Michael, what have you got? Something a little more highbrow: "The Wasteland" by T.S. Eliot. The second section. I, I was hoping that you would go there. Go ahead. The second section of that very long, very confusing poem is called "A Game of Chess," which Eliot's footnotes, if you can believe them, says comes from the Thomas Middleton play "A Game at Chess," which I have not read but which apparently uses chess as a metaphor for international relations. I read that one for my comps. It uses chess as a metaphor for international relations? It does indeed. Eliot does not use it as a metaphor for that, although he uses it, like every other image in the wasteland, as a metaphor for three or four other things. <laughs> it, it immediately stands for upper-class life. You can tell from the first uh, first few lines of that section. The chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble with a glass held up by standards, wrought with fruited vines from which a golden cupidon peeped out. Uh, so, I mean, you, you have this image of elegance, of wealth, and of human conflict and in, in in that section of the wasteland is largely about conflicts between men and women so you have philomel getting raped you have uh the shakespearean rag i suppose that's not exactly um conflicts between men and women you have lil and her and her friend talking about getting an abortion uh unproductive sexuality just unpleasant relationships all around and uh Furthermore, it is a a metaphor for 
boredom and ennui. He says, the hot water at ten, and if it rains, a closed car at four, and we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. So I, I picked this because, like, uh, you know, it's it's it, it it's so multifoliate to use another good Eliotian word. It, mm-hmm. it, it it has so many possible meanings in this section of the wasteland that, uh, it, you know, it's it's kind of an image of chess itself, which has so many possible moves at any given point until you know the last one. Until the king is dead. All right. Is it, is it to me then? It's to you then. All right. Uh, first of all, I'll just give a quick mention to the play that Michael already mentioned, A Game at Chess. Uh, Thomas Middleton, of course, is one of the uh, favorites of the Renaissance people over at UGA. So if any of you all are listening, uh, here's my mention of Middleton. Moving on from there, <laughs> uh, one story that I remember with horror uh, is Kurt Vonnegut's story, All the King's Horses, uh, in which a U.S. Army colonel, I think, although I don't remember his uh, rank very clearly, uh, is captured along with his family and some of his uh, some of the men in his unit by a communist guerrilla in China, and they are taken to an underground hideout uh, where they are forced to play a game of chess on a giant board uh, but the colonel's soldiers and his family are the chess pieces, and the rules are if any uh, piece gets captured, they are executed immediately. Uh, and if the colonel can win the chess game, then uh, anyone who's left alive is freed. And so basically the, you know, the guerrilla leader uh, plays a very sloppy game trying to get the colonel to sacrifice pieces to get the checkmate. And the thing ends when the colonel realizes that he has to sacrifice one of his sons uh, in order to win the game and free the rest of the pieces. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of that agony of realizing that, you know, he has to give up one life to save several. Um, But Vonnegut lets you off the hook. Uh, And I'm kind of glad he did just for the sake of my own soul. But uh, he sacrifices his son. Uh, the guerrilla leader is about to shoot him in the head, but one of his own men double-crosses him for being such a sadistic creep uh, and, you know, kills the general. And, you know, the Russian who is there, of course, advising the communist guerrilla says, uh, you know, you're a great player, comrade. We should play sometime, but with not as much at stake. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, talk about a nightmare story. But uh, the final one that I want to talk about, and I know I said a couple, but the Middleton one doesn't count. Uh, the final one is actually a scene from a TV show. Uh, and it's one of those things where because the elements brought in are so disparate, it's just a glorious and delightful scene. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, but it's in an early episode of The Wire, which is a television series I talk a lot about. Uh, but there's a scene in which uh, not the kingpins of the drug gang, but the low-level street dealers uh, have a chess set. And, you know, the one of them who is sort of the the smartest of the low-level street dealers, the one that's sort of set up early as the one who might rise up and become one of the big shots in the drug trade, uh, tries to explain to these low-level street dealers the way that chess works. 
And of course it becomes immediately apparent that he is narrating the ethos of chess in terms of his own ambitions within the drug gang. So, I mean, it's just this, you know, wonderful allegory of urban life. It's a wonderful allegory of, you know, uh, chess again as a social marker because he's the only one among the street dealers who actually knows how to play chess. Uh, and you know, I, I, I've, I've emoted so much about that series. I'll stop now, but lovely scene. Um, <laughs> Go I'm ahead, surprised David. none of you. Uh, I, I'm surprised none of you guys took up uh, through the Looking Glass. I guess there, I haven't read that since I was a kid. I don't remember. It, well, I mean, I know I, there's chess stuff in it, but I don't remember it well. I, I, I've been told that if you read it carefully, that there's actually a discernible game of chess that's being played. Huh? I'll be. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, I, I've I, never actually read it myself, so I mean, I again, I'll believe you, but. Well, I, I, again, it's been a long time. Uh, it's probably been as long since I've read it as as, as you, you Michael. But uh, I, I remember reading somewhere that that if you read it closely, there's there's actually a a discernible game that's going on, um, in which uh, Alice is is uh, one of the pieces. So, so yeah, I, it'd be interesting to dig into that. But I did not because I assumed that someone else will take it so no I, i've never read it so that's why i didn't take it i mean i'm aware of that scene because i've read a couple senior projects at emmanuel on lewis carroll but I'm, i still haven't gotten around to that book myself <laughs> we also need to at least nod to uh, vladimir nabokov and mm-hmm. our listener who speaks russian can feel free to write in and correct me <laughs> um I, I haven't read his chess novel the lose him again please Tell me how to pronounce it. The, the Lucent Def- Defense, which is a, a about a, a chess game. Nor have I read King Queen Knave, which sits on my shelf at home waiting to be read, which I assume at least has, uh, you know, chess things in it. But Nabokov loves chess. He has lots of references to it in most of his books. And uh, so, I mean, we really should at least mention it, even though I don't have anything to to say about it oh i should also say he has a book of chess problems okay so i mean fascinating along with butterflies and anagrams nabokov loves chess which if you've ever read nabokov makes perfect sense fair enough well michael to switch it up a little bit i grew up at the tail end of the cold war and because i did i've always associated chess with russia and with soviet politics more specifically you know, back then it was the famous Fisher and Spassky matches as a sort of metonymy for the American-Soviet strife. Uh, and in recent years, I, I've found this fascinating. Uh, the great chess master Gary Kasparov has been one of the. I mean, I mean he's been a very outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin and, and of Russian politics more generally. And what's more, Russia seems to care about what a chess player says as much as Americans take the politics of, you know, actors and pop musicians seriously. Uh, what's going on in Russia and not in America that makes the category chess celebrity nonsense here? I've always wondered that myself, so I uh, googled around and I found a Slate article that happens to explain it. It's called Red Squares, Why Are the Russians so good at chess and as you might imagine the ans- it, it is not an accident that they are mm-hmm. um, chess was always popular in Russia 
but when the Soviets took over, they subsidized it. And so <laughs> they, they very aggressively pushed chess on their citizens. They opened schools, they had tournaments, and they, uh, they basically set it up as an arena in which Russians could dominate the rest of the world. And they did. Indeed, they did. <laughs> uh, enough like to what it was a Saved by the Bell episode about it, of all things. Huh. So, so um, you know, it, it, maybe that's not the world's most interesting story. It's certainly not the longest answer I've ever given, but that's the answer. They, uh, the That was a conscious decision on the part of the authorities in the USSR in the, uh, right, after the, right after the Bolshevik re- uh, Revolution. Right. Well, and, and, you know, that's what makes Bobby Fischer such a fascinating figure is that, you know, he was this, first of all, completely off his rocker nuts American, uh, I mean, who could actually go into Russia and play their best and win. And so, and for, I mean, a, so for a period of time, chess mattered in America as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, although, I mean, every time Bobby Fischer opened his mouth, Americans realized that maybe this isn't the guy we want to be our national figurehead. <laughs> so do, i mean do you think that it was subsidized you know subsidized in russia and put really pushed in russia because you know in the early 20th century i guess when when they when they came to power that that chess still meant what it had meant so much historically that it means dominance in strategic thinking dominance of reason you know, all of those other kinds of things that, you know, for, you know, for a Renaissance gentleman, the, the things that chess was proxy for, was it still proxy for that? And that's why Russians wanted to dominate? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me as a theory, you know, I mean, it, it since it is, like we talked about earlier, a game where chance really doesn't play into it. I mean, if you can produce a generation of dominant chess players, I mean, that is a like I said, at the very least, a metonymy of the fact that the life of the mind, you are dominating globally. Mm. Uh, I mean, Michael, am I oversimplifying that? Well, and you also have the uh, the fact that chess has been used as a metaphor for international relations and so many works in media. Mm. Oh, yeah, good point, good point. But mm. yeah, I, I think it's something that... that the authorities in charge of the USSR recognized that they could dominate. And so, mm-hmm. you know, aside from its intellectual capital, I think they picked it because for pragmatic reasons as well. Right. Well, so, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say, so it's like, I mean, I, I forget which of you said it. It's kind of like gymnastics then, or um, trying to think what are the, you know, hockey or, right. you know, Dolph Lundgren in the boxing ring. <laughs> uh, we dominate you physically. We dominate you mentally. I will break you. Yeah. See, I'm I'm just younger enough than you guys to not have particular feelings about the Cold War. I was seven years old when the when the wall came down, mm-hmm. and so like the, the you know the closest thing I can remember is in my fifth grade class we had a Russian exchange student, and the rumor going around in. <laughs> the boys in my class was that he was a bodybuilder because all Russians were. <laughs> and my of course uh, my father sat me down and said, "Are all ba- are all Americans baseball players?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's awesome. 
Yeah, and see, I, and again, going back to personal experience, we had a uh, Russian student in my seminary, and I only played chess with him once, and once again, I, I never was in that game. So, in my mind, Russia really is the dominant <laughs> chess power. Because <laughs> the one, well, the one time I made the mistake of playing a Russian, I got clobbered. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it's up for debate. They're the dominant chess power. They still are, unless IBM has taken over that. Uh, interestingly, mantle. I and you know, back when the New York Times had, uh, oh, what was their chess blog called? I can't remember now. But at any rate, I mean, it, it, they canceled it. But you know, uh, for a while there, I was reading it fairly faithfully, and I mean, it was actually players from Israel and India that were making the big splash. Well, so, I mean, you know, it's interesting if you think of India's place in the world, you know, it's it's kind of interesting that now they're producing some of the great dominant chess players. The that name of that sense. blog was The Gambit. Yes, The Gambit. Thank you. Thank you. I was going to say, was it Stalemate? No. En passant? No. Uh... <laughs> some chess term or other. Yes, yes, yes. Well, anyway, uh, I... I'm kind of keeping an eye on time. I'm going to press yeah. on here. David, as far as you're concerned, to what extent does chess deserve its status as the supreme measure of intellectual capacity? Uh, do other games that we humans play deserve to supplant chess as the test of national robotic and other sorts of intellect? Mm, this is a tough question. This is hard. Um <laughs> Well, let me put it this way. The Russians were really, 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 really good at chess. But they didn't win the Cold War. Um, I, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it, 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 is, it is a game that really does represent intellectual capacity, not just the ability to remember the moves and to be able to think ahead you know a certain number of terms the ability to read your opponent's skill on the basis of what they've already done in order to anticipate what they're likely to do all of that sort of thing yeah yeah you've got to do that but um in 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 some sense i think it might be a little bit too rational hmm. so that um if you're if you're looking for excellence in a game that that measures intellectual capacity, I think part of measuring intellectual capacity is, you know, the ability to deal with the randomness and irrationality, it, randomness and irrationality as factors. Mm -hmm. And chess is a game that largely removes those. Mm -hmm. um, so. Now maybe it's because I'm bad at chess that I'm saying right. <laughs> I'm not. Let, let's not take that fact off the table. It's probably, it's probably affecting, you know, my judgment somewhat. But it seems to me that a game like Risk, all right, a um, game which you have crushed me at on numerous occasions, David. I only remember the one. Maybe it was just so badly that it multiplied itself in your mind. Yeah, maybe maybe the other ones were nightmares. Well, then you proceeded to whip me like a thing that gets whipped. Um, We're running out of cliches. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
anyway, a, a, a game a game like that, yeah, you you know you still have to you know keep in mind you know a complex set of rules. You still have to you know try to anticipate moves ahead. You still have to read your opponent and try to guess their intentions on the basis of what they've already done. But there's still this this element of fortuna and uh, th- that you know that you also have to take into account and be able to roll with it. Um, in some sense, I wonder to the, to the degree that if 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 you train your statesmen all on chess, you know what happens when things go pear shaped, right? Well, you know what what are they going to do when the rules don't seem to be working? Um, interestingly enough, I one 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 book that I don't see with a you know featuring chess as a prominent feature, um, so far as I can recall, is Machiavelli's The Prince. Yeah, yeah, I actually thought about Machiavelli when I was drafting that question because I, I mean, did, do you either of y'all remember chess having anything ha- having any role? No, nope. Okay. All right, and it, it's definitely in the instruction of Prince's mm-hmm. genre, but it doesn't seem to value chess in the way other other books in the genre do, and I think that's because Machiavelli sees sees being able to being able to govern, being able to have, you know, mast, mastery in life as something that that involves not just mastering the 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 intellectual and the rational and the rule based. But also being able to roll with the irrational and the random. So, anyway, I think we can all agree thought. that the true game of kings is Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> the original Trivial Pursuit or the continual loathed updates? Well, well, I mean, the updates are fine. You don't want anything that's too specific. Yeah, well, yeah. don't like the updates. They require me to keep up with pop culture. Yeah. <laughs> Grubbs is a purist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and David, I mean, I was going back and forth in my own head on this because, uh, I mean, I, I've played Risk. I mean, I could count the number of times on one hand. Uh, but what I have played a lot of and what I played really entirely too much in college was Axis and Allies. Which is, you know, a, likewise a very complex game, a very detailed rule book. Uh, but, I mean, what always bugs me, and again, uh, we're getting into confession of sins here in my personal hangups. What always bugged me about Axis and Allies is that when I got good at it and I was matched up against, you know, the best players at Milligan College, uh, every game, I mean, it would go for three or four hours and then it would all turn on a throw of the dice. Just like, and, uh, know, just like human history. Well, and you know what? What bugged me was, I mean, uh, and of course, I mean, the smack talk that always ensued when the person who got the good dice got the good dice was always memorable. Uh, but I always, when I won those things, because I mean, I can talk about when I lost and all the awful words that I spoke out loud. Uh, but when I won those things, I always felt it was a sort of hollow victory. Because I really couldn't say that I played better than the other guy. So I mean, I, I, I again, it's I, like I'm Monopoly. Gonna, well, I mean, it, 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 it is in the in the, in respect that it's got dice involved. You know, it is that random 
fall of the dice, you know. These one, are all games other... my wife won't play with me. <laughs> one, one other candidate, and I mean, I'll, I'll bounce this off of you guys, and you can tell me if I'm completely off my rocker here, is actually uh, computer-based real-time strategy games where you're actually controlling units, you know, moving around a battlefield. And the reason that I would propose that is because, again, it is immensely complex. You need to know how fast certain units move, what kind of armor they have, what kind of firepower they have, what kinds of dangers they run into from opposing units. Uh, but because it is happening as fast as your mouse moves, it's not the uh, you know wait for your turn sort of thing that chess is. I mean, is that something that you guys would regard as an intellectual pursuit or... You know, am I just bitter because I keep getting whipped by 13-year-olds? I've, I've never played any of those, but it sounds like they combine the best of both worlds, doesn't it? Mm. I, I mean, I, I remember, you know, I, I played some Command and Conquer in my time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, yeah, I've, I've, I've played games like that. And yeah, they, they take, um, I mean, the first few times you just get overwhelmed, but then you, you know, you, you start... Uh, yeah, you, you start thinking strategically. Um, the problem with a lot of those games is um, a lot of times the the AI that you play against in single-player mode is kind of dim and predictable. <laughs> yeah. And then if you, if you shift from, from playing the, the single-player AI to playing in multiplayer, um, you just get owned, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, with a P. Yeah. Yeah, and it's 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 pretty, uh, pretty terrible, but yeah, I mean, I, I I would consider that that kind of thing, you know, taking taking the idea of chess, yeah, and the idea of risk, and you know, melding them, melding them quite nicely, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, and, I mean, I, I don't see them as contingent upon dice like Axis and Allies or Risk would be, but it is contingent on speed in a way that chess isn't. Mm -hmm. In other words, you've got to be able to react to things very, very quickly, or mm -hmm. you lose. <laughs> unless, you, unless you have the timed chess game. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, good point. I've, I've played a fair bit of speed chess in my day, so, yeah. Well, anyway, Michael, I'm going to end this session not with a theological takeaway question, as is my want, uh, but as a debate proposition that I want to throw your way, all right? And then I'm going to toss it David's way. And here's the proposition. Let it be resolved that, along with literature and mathematics and philosophy, chess should become one of the liberal arts at the core of the Christian Humanist University's curriculum. Uh, would you take up the side for or against that motion and why? Michael, take it away. I'd probably go against, uh, but I could do four with some modifications. So I would be in, more in favor of saying um, games of skill and wit should be part of it, and then instead of just having chess, maybe throw in some of the other ones we just talked about for the reasons we just talked about them. On the other hand, I think it's probably a good idea for everybody to learn how to play, if only because there's still quite a bit of, you know, if you know how to play chess, people think you're smarter than you are. <laughs> and you know what's college about if not learning to appear smarter than you are <laughs> I always tell my students that a liberal arts education it's is mostly mostly about being interesting at cocktail parties 
<laughs> and you know, chess makes you more interesting at cocktail parties. Like I wish I knew some of the names of the defenses and the gambits and the opening moves. Yeah, I think you would really like Stephen Potter's books. I don't I, I, read them. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I, mm, core, like 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 just as important as others. Um, it, it's it's an interesting notion because it's it's basically saying that if students devote their time to this skill, to this pursuit, they are reaping analogous benefits, Mm -hmm. developmentally, intellectually, and so forth. Um, And initially, I think, what? No. (laughs) But then I keep thinking about it, and it starts looking more attractive. You know, though I think if you if you open it up the way Michael did, um, you know where, yeah, ga- ga- games. What, what was it? What was your term, Michael? Games of wit. Is it? Wit is that games of wit and skill. Games of wit that's and a, skill. That's a great phrase, by the way. Oh, thank you. I yeah. said something good today. <laughs> Woohoo! I, I think I would go with games of with games of wit and skill as you know as a, as a serious study and more than one. Encouraging them to, you know, not simply devote their thinking to one, because I think, you know, that 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 helps to encourage a kind of uh, pliability and adaptability of thought. Right? Their their strategic thinking doesn't get built, doesn't get bent around one set of rules and objectives. Right? Um, yeah, I think that I think that could actually be pretty pretty cool. Um, almost and almost as serviceable in some ways as a as a debate club, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. I'm for it. All right. Well, of course, I'm going to argue for the motion uh, that chess should be added as a core liberal art again because uh, it is a practice in Alistair McIntyre's sense. Uh, it is a complex human act. Uh, that has its own internal goods that requires a certain complexity of thought. I know I'm paraphrasing his definition badly. But I'm I'm Uh, only going to play it with you if you give me candy first. (laughs) Uh, But, and here's why I would advocate it as a good supplement, you know, not a replacement for, but a supplement to uh, mathematics and physics and such things, is because uh, it is a human practice in which everything is contingent upon what the other human being does. Uh, so in other words, I mean, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it teaches you, you know, uh, Martin Buber philosophy or anything like that. What it does do, however, is it trains your mind to regard the reality in front of you as contingent upon other actors. Uh, and if you don't regard it as contingent upon the actions of other actors, then you lose every time. Uh, so I think in that respect, chess is indeed something that is worthwhile for study, a good upbuilding of the intellect. I'm in favor. <laughs> well, cool. folks, we thought that this was going to be one of our record short episodes, but we have managed to talk a fair bit about the glorious game of kings. Uh, I want to thank I want to thank Arden 
I also want to thank uh, David Grubbs and Michael Farmer this <laughs> <Sorry>. morning. <laughs> no, it's cool. Hey, I've got two kids of my own, man. Don't David. Don't David spawn once on the uh, once on the episode. That's right. That's right. She she's going to be our guest for the outro this week. Uh, but I want to thank Michael Farmer and David Grubbs for a good episode. Uh, trying to think, Michael. I think you're up next week. I'm what are up we next. About? We'll be talking about death. Full stop. Full stop. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for the other shoe to drop, but I yeah, guess that I, there's shoes, there's right? no other shoe than death. I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, listeners, be sure to wear black when you're listening to our next episode. Smoke and, uh, clove cigarettes. That's right. <laughs> And in the meantime, before you contemplate your own most demise, uh, be sure to check us out on the web at christianhumanist.org. Check us out on iTunes. Tell your friends about us on iTunes. We enjoy doing this, and we enjoy hearing from listeners, so the more listeners, the better. Uh, If you want to click on that little uh, five-star rating, that would be groovy. If you want to write us a little review, that would be even groovier. Uh, You can also email us, of course, at thechristianhumanist.org at gmail.com. You can talk to us on our Facebook page. Uh, there are all sorts of ways to enjoy the company of the Christian humanists after you've listened to the podcast. In the meantime, until next week, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. Checkmate. you